chapter 21. We are now returned to our study of the book of Acts. And we'll be completing this particular chapter today. Our text is found in verses 27 through 40. Our reading will be verses 26 to 39. I've entitled this message, Taking the Higher Ground. Let me read this passage to you, verses 26 to 39. Then Paul took the men, that being the four men that were uh, to be sponsored by Paul in, in the temple, as requested by the eldership of the church of Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then, to, uh, then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and uh, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! And then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks. He said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Father, we ask that you lead us and guide us now through your word and through the power of your spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen. In Sun Tzu's classic military work, The Principles of Warfare, The Art of War, a book studied by all military strategists down through the ages and even into modern times. The statement is made in chapter 7 of that work. And I quote, Do not attack an enemy that has the high ground. Do not attack an enemy that has his back to a hill. Do not pursue feigned retreats or fake retreats. Do not attack elite troops. Do not swallow the enemy's bait. Do not thwart an enemy retreating home. If you surround an enemy, leave an outlet. Do not press an enemy that is cornered. These are the principles of warfare. But that first statement is what I want to draw your attention to. Do not attack an enemy that has the high ground. Throughout the history of nations, battles over hills and high places have resulted either in in the devastation of armies convinced in the superiority of those hills to obtain the dominant position in the war, or victories over a steadily weakening enemy trying to hold their position. Battles like Bunker Hill in the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Civil War, Iwo Jima in World War II, Pork Chop Hill in Korea, Hamburger Hill in Vietnam, just to name a few. Why, even in the movie Star Wars, Episode 3, Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Anakin Skywalker, It's over, Anakin. I have the higher ground. But both geographically and morally, the higher ground is a superior position. There is some moral geography in our text today. After the Apostle Paul is beaten nearly to death by a hostile mob, we're told in verse 39 that he requests permission to address them. And certainly when we read his remarks in our next study, we shall see that Paul reaches out in love to this angry mob with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Geographically, his higher ground was the stairs that led up to the Antonia Fortress. But the real higher ground, the real high ground for Paul, the moral high ground for Paul, was his resolute and unyielding choice to minister God's grace to a people who hated him enough to kill him. And I am convinced that the words shouted by the hostile crowd helped Paul to refocus on the gospel They were crying, away with him, away with him. How eerie it must have been to hear words which had been cried out by a previously angry mob. You know what mob that was? It was a mob that was spoken of in John 19 verse 15. Many years earlier when we're told there that they cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! Do we know who it's talking about now? 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus would be taken to the cross. And there we discover the ultimate high ground, the ultimate spiritual high ground, the higher ground that would assure Him of victory over sin and death as our Savior. How possible it may have been. Think about this for just a moment. How possible it may have been for Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus to be in that angry mob that day. It was quite possible. We don't know historically. But we could assume being that not many months later he would be leading attacks against the church until he would meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. But it was there on Calvary. It was there on Golgotha's hill. A hill. A high ground. Where we learn that the cross either incites or it invites. The cross either incites or it invites. And actually it does both. Because the cross incited and it still incites unbelievers to hatred. A tremendous hatred toward Christ, toward the church, toward the followers of Jesus. That's happening even in our country today. In a, in a, in a greater and even more vocal and sometimes an even more active way. The cross incited and still incites unbelievers to hate, but it also invited and still invites people to love. Back then, it invited one believer, Paul, to love the unbeliever. Well, there are two thoughts that I'd like for you to consider from our text this morning. First of all, when we take the high ground of the cross... Because that's what you're going to hear a lot about today. The high ground of the cross of Jesus Christ. When we take the high ground of the cross, we will incite unbelievers to hate us. That's just what's going to happen. Jesus Himself talks about it. We'll see that in a moment. So when we take the high ground of the cross, we will incite unbelievers to hate us. But conversely speaking, when we take the high ground of the cross, we are invited to love the unbeliever. We are invited to love the unbeliever. Let's go back, if you will, to verse 26. If you remember, before this, Paul had arrived in Jerusalem, had gone to the church in Jerusalem, spoken to the elders of the church. We were told that, that they were elders and there were no apostles because the apostles had already gone out into various directions outside of Jerusalem. And when Paul gets there, they said, you know, we've heard some rumors about what you're teaching. So, that we might know, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing here a little bit, but so that we might know that, uh, you know, this isn't. So, well, we would like for you to take these four men and sponsor them at the temple during this particular time, this feast, and pay for their... Uh, purification and the sacrifice and all that's going to be offered for them and 
and you go yourself and and uh, you know the time of that will be about seven days as as the, as the dictates were so we're told in verse 26 that Paul took the men and the next day having been purified with them entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of the purification at which time an offering should be made for each one of them and now when the seven days were almost ended and I mentioned last time that it says almost ended because it never got to the point where Paul himself would have to make a sacrifice because Paul realized there was already one sacrifice made and that was the sacrifice of Christ on the cross so he wouldn't make it God helped him in this particular case. But he says, When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, which doesn't mean they prayed for him. That means they took him to beat him. Because they cried out, saying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who, who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place being the temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So when we last left Paul, he was attempting to dispel the misunderstanding that he was teaching Jews falsely. Again, I draw your attention to verse 21. We haven't gone there yet, but let's go back there. Verse 21, but they have been informed about you. This is the elder speaking to Paul. They have been informed about you, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, and here it is, to forsake Moses, saying that uh, they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. Now Paul took and sponsored those four men in the temple purification ceremony, and it was during that time that certain people spotted and recognized this Trophimus, because they were all from Asia, and, and they recognized Trophimus, a traveling companion of Paul's from Ephesus, and they either assumed that Paul brought him into the area of the temple that was forbidden to the Gentiles, which, by the way, I don't believe Paul did. I don't believe Paul would do that. So they either assumed that he did, or they just fabricated the, the accusations. And by the way, that's, it's not a new thing that people would give any false witness against Christians or against believers, because they did the same to Jesus. When they brought Jesus before uh, 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 the Sanhedrin uh, for trial, they brought false accusations. And here it happens again, and this time to Paul. So it was then the perfect opportunity to seize and to attack this apostle. And in verse 27 it says, When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the crowd. They laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! And, you know, they go on, you know, we've read it already, but he says, This man teaches every man teaches all men everywhere against the people, in other words, against the Jews, against the law, and against the temple. And furthermore, he's also brought Greeks into the temple. And again, there's not, it doesn't say that he did. But they're accusing him of it. So the whole city, it says, was disturbed. Verse 30, And the people ran together, they seized him, and they dragged him out of the temple. That tells me that they were treating him physically uh, in a bad way, therefore uh, probably beating him, right? Well, we'll see that, he, that they did. And it tells us that immediately the doors were shut. Now that's interesting. The doors were shut going back into the temple where the, or, or into the section where uh, the Jews were allowed to go. Where they had him was probably in the court of the Gentiles, but they locked the door even coming into that, so those who were in there would not allow Paul to get out because it says the doors were shut. So they were shut on all sides. 
And they had Paul trapped. And it's interesting that the charges leveled against Paul was an echo of the charges for which Stephen was executed back in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. Now let's go back there for just a moment because we need to see this connection. Because in Acts chapter 6 verses 12 through 14, we are being told that the people were stirred up. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and this again another mob. And they came upon him, speaking of Stephen, who was a deacon in the church of Jerusalem. They came upon him, they seized him, and they brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses. There it is again. Not a new thing. They set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. So the very same accusation that was given to Paul was given earlier on to Stephen. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who was there as a chief accuser of Stephen? You know who it is. Saul of Tarsus. Who would later become the Apostle Paul. How interesting. Listen, as Christians, we we should not be surprised, but should count on being misunderstood and misrepresented at best and accused falsely at worst as being witnesses and testifiers to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in the days and times in which we live. Maybe it hasn't come down to this thing yet of of taking and beating and dragging and stoning and everything else that they did in those days, but it might very well happen. There is such an anti-Semitic and anti-Christian attitude in our country today that can only grow. And I've oftentimes said, it's not getting any better, it's getting worse. It is a sign that Jesus is on His way. He's coming again. But we need to be strong. And we need to be courageous. And we can only be courageous and strong if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So whether we like it or not, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And it is a battle that is going on all around us for the souls of men and women. Our very presence, folks... Our very presence is a potential problem for the devil and and his hordes of demons simply for what we stand for and stand upon. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to say that again to you because I want it to be implanted into your mind and in your heart. Our presence here in this world is a potential problem for the devil and the hordes of demons of his simply for what we stand for and stand upon. Notice, stand for and stand upon. Our high ground, what is it? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the cross of Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Blessed are you when men hate you. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. You see, for the sake of Christ. Rejoice, He says in that day, and, and leap for joy. Well, that's not what a lot of Christians are doing right now. But that's what Jesus says we ought to do when faced with this problem. 
He says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Paul came to understand the importance of the cross as our high ground when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God to those of us being saved. The message of the cross. He says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. As it pertains to the very fact that we are going to be misunderstood, that we are going to be certainly misrepresented, that we are going to have false accusations against us at all times, Those are trials, those are tribulations, those are persecutions. What does James say about all of this? He says in James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There are byproducts to our standing firm, standing for, and standing upon the cross of Jesus Christ produces patience in us. You know, I hate to say this, but we're living in a day and time that, that is a very impatient time. We live in a very impatient world. Everybody wants to get from point A to point B in the fastest way that they possibly can, not caring about anybody else around them. Christians should be patient. But where does that patience come from if we are not realizing that the things that we are going through are really those things that are building up faith and patience in us each and every day of our lives? Maybe it's time for some of us to return back to the cross and to the message of the cross because that's our high ground, you see. Later on in James chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Maybe we, maybe we better start returning back to the Lord who loves us, and start loving him, and start loving those that he's called us to bring to him. And Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-14, through 14, says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Don't think it strange that it is going to come upon you, even in our day and time. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice. These, these are words being echoed from the very thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we've already touched upon in Luke chapter 6. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy if you are reproached for the name of Christ. In other words, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He's blasphemed, but on your part He's glorified. We have to take the perspective of the cross into every aspect and part of our lives. 
or else we're not taking the higher ground. The verses in our text here in the book of Acts highlight what our reactions are to those misunderstandings and accusations. You see, our natural reactions when faced with persecutions, when faced with reproaches and insults, when faced with false accusations, our natural reactions would be two things, fight or flight. Either we fight or we flee. Either we want to defend ourselves or we want to get out of the situation. But may I suggest a third reaction? May I suggest a third reaction that's actually God's directive for every believer in Jesus Christ? That third reaction is this. Faithfully stand fixed and firmed by proclaiming the love of Christ with our enemies and or our attackers. That's the third thing. That's the third alternative, alternative as it were. Faithfully stand fixed and firm by proclaiming the love of Christ with our enemies. You either fight, you flee, or you faithfully stand firm. Where? On the high ground. The high ground of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, let's go back to Peter. Go back one chapter to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, but sanctify, in other words, set apart as holy the Lord God in your hearts. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Now that's not one of these. That's not like you're defending yourself. The word is actually apologia. You know, an, apolo- an apology is not an apology as, as if, you know, forgive me. It is the defense of the faith. It is standing firm upon God's Word. It is giving forth the truth of God's Word. And doing it in a proper and rational and, and spiritual way. He says, give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You see, the only ones who will ever be ashamed are going to be the ones that have reviled you, insulted you, reproached you, said things of you, been false witnesses against you. They will be ashamed, but it says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So we can't do that unless we are on the high ground of the cross of Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17. And Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We are not to be ashamed. He says, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We as Christians have to stand upon the fact that we are obeying the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and proclaiming that good news. But what's going to happen to those who don't? To those who don't obey the gospel? So if we're suffering for Christ, hey, it's all right. Rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven, Jesus said. Faithfully stand fixed. 
faithfully stand firm by proclaiming the love of Christ. We don't have to fight to defend ourselves. God says, I am your defense. I'm your shield. I'm your buckler. I'm your rear guard. I defend you. Now getting back to Paul. In Paul's case, the attack that he was receiving was physical. Look at verse 30. All the city was disturbed. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. That's pretty physical. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, well that pretty much says it all. News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in uproar. We'll meet him later and realize that his name is Claudius Lysias. Verse 32 says, He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, there it tells us what they were doing to Paul. They were beating him. And then the commander came near and they took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. That's interesting. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Some among the multitude cried one thing and some another, and so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him! Now I, gotta, I have to tell you, this is really a hypocritical scene here, isn't it? It is a hypocritical scene. Because the people wanted to kill Paul but they didn't want to kill him on what they considered to be holy ground. Oh, let's not kill him in here. Let's take him out into the court of the Gentiles. We'll kill him there. Seems that uh, there's a commandment somewhere that says, Thou shalt not murder. That they should have been respecting here. They were an angry mob. They were the populace with a popular religious position. And Paul's presence stirred all of that up. Folks, religious people, by the way, don't like to be told that their religious good works are a pile of rubbish. Religious people don't like to be told that God wants a personal relationship with them and not a religious one. They just don't want to be told that they're sinners in need of salvation. Yesterday morning, in preparation for this weekend, I was reading a devotional that I have on the internet from A.W. Tozer. And this month of October, he's been dealing with the issue of failure and success. And it just so happens, and this was, of course was yesterday, October the 10th. But he wrote this devotional, or actually it was, it was edited and, and put together, as, and called The Scramble for Popularity. And the text that is used is Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. It goes alongside of what we read earlier in Luke chapter 6, 
where Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And and A.W. Tozer says this, he says, Popular Judaism slew the prophets and crucified Christ. Popular Christianity killed the Reformers, jailed the Quakers, and drove John Wesley into the streets. When it comes to religion, the crowds are always wrong. At any time, there are a few who see and the rest are blinded. To stand by the truth of God against the current religious vogue is always unpopular and maybe downright dangerous. And then he says Christianity scramble for popularity today is an unconscious acknowledgement of spiritual decline. Even though he wrote this some 40 years ago, probably 50 years ago, it is as true today as it's ever been. And again, I say Christianity's scramble for popularity today is an unconscious acknowledgement of spiritual decline. Her eager fawning at the feet of the world's great is a grief to the Holy Spirit and an embarrassment to the sons of God. The lick-spittle attitude of popular Christian leaders toward the, the world's celebrities would make such men as Elijah or George Fox sick to the stomach. I believe A.W. Tozer never minced words. And then he says, Lot was a popular believer. He sat in the gates of Sodom, but when trouble struck, he had to send quick for Abraham to get him out of the jam. And where did they find Abraham? Out on the hillside. Far away from the fashionable crowds. It has always been so. For every Elijah there have been there have always been 400 popular, popular prophets of Baal. For every Noah, there is always a vast multitude who will not believe it is going to rain. Pretty heavy stuff, folks. But pretty heavily true. He says we are sent to bless the world, but never are we told to compromise with it. That's what religion does. When Christ taught us to preach relationship. It's all about relationship with Jesus. It's all about relationship with God. It's about God coming to us. It's about Emmanuel, God with us. It's about Him taking our sins and placing them upon the cross so that we might be set free from the bondage of sin and death. But religious popular religious philosophy, thought, and ideals, they'll want it. So getting back to Paul, the Romans were not far from the scene of the riot. Rome kept soldiers adjoining the temple in a building called the Fortress of Antonia, uh, named for Herod's patron Marcus Antonius, or as we know him, Mark Anthony. 
Not the singer, by the way. This is an older guy. In fact, more than 500 soldiers were stationed only two flights of stairs from the court of the Gentiles where Paul was being beaten. That's why they responded so quickly. But let me say that the Romans didn't sympathize with Paul because they were only interested in keeping public order. And they arrested Paul both for his own protection and to remove the cause of the uproar. He didn't want to cause uproar in those days and times and places. They just wiped you out. So they wanted to bring that uproar down and just take it away. But I want you to consider something here. It tells us that they chained Paul. They handcuffed him as it were. And it brings to mind that prophecy given by Agabus back in chapter 21, which is this chapter, verse 11, when it said, When he had come to us, speaking of the prophet, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. To some extent, that happens right here. It was the riot that brings Paul uh, to the attention of the Romans, and the Romans come and they bind him, and they take him. Certainly for his own protection, but nonetheless, the prophecy comes to pass. And then we get to the stairs where they take Paul, the stairs going up into the fortress. The stairs presented a strategic problem for the soldiers that we read there in verse 35. Affording the mob a place to crush in against them to make a last-ditch effort to get to Paul. You know, that's what the crowd wanted to do. And so the soldiers carried the apostle to safety. Now what are they doing? They're carrying him up the stairs. They're going up to where? They're going up to higher ground. But it reminds us. There has to be that constant reminder of what Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen when He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. Paul really knew that. As he's going through all of these things. And whether we say anything or not, our presence as believers represents the cross of Jesus Christ. May I say that again? Whether we say anything or not, our presence as believers in Jesus Christ represents the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is offensive to unbelievers because it exposes them as sinners in desperate need of salvation. I wonder how many people whom we have affected whether in the workplace or the classroom, whether in home or hovel, would want to beat us to a bloody pulp for our stand on the cross of Christ. Maybe they won't do it because of the fear of the law, but nowadays, I even heard that somebody stabbed somebody the other day because of the baseball game, or a football game, I should say. Who knows what's next? We need to consider Paul's reaction at this point because in verse 37 it says, And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? Now you've got to remember something here. <laughs> Paul was beaten. And if there was a mob, I'm sure he was beaten pretty good. Well, pretty bad. All depends on how you see it. He was probably beaten pretty good and pretty bad too. He was in pretty bad shape. 
in other words, because they beat him pretty good. English language is a real funny language. Got beaten pretty good. He's in bad shape. Well, you know, here again, listen. He says, may I speak to you? He replied, and this is the, the commander, he says, can, can you speak Greek? He says, are, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And but Paul says, hey, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. In Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Here's a prisoner who's chained and, and handcuffed, and he gets up there and he starts speaking, and he says, can I speak to you? And he says, I thought you were some kind of weirdo. He says, I'm a Jew, and I'm a citizen of Rome. That's, a, that's what he said. In effect, he says, I'm a citizen of Rome. So the guy says, then you can speak. Didn't know he was a citizen of Rome. And when there was this great silence, and here's the other thing that's amazing. He says, when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs. What is that? That's the higher ground. Guess what? Paul is on higher ground. And he motions with his hand to the people. And you think, this is the mob that wants to kill him. And what happened? They shut up. They quieted down. They got silent. It's one of those moments. I don't understand this. You understand it when you know God's in control. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, that's next week. You've got to just love Paul here. He's almost beat to death. His life is in jeopardy. Final jeopardy, you might say. And he wants to still share Jesus with this mob of angry Jews. He just never gave up because none of those things moved him from the course that was set for his life. None of those things moved him. Do you remember where that was? Acts chapter 20, verse 24. None of these things move me. I'm going to Jerusalem. And even when he's mistaken for the Egyptian leader of a large band of assassins known as the Sicari, which comes from the word Sicarios, which means murders, he reveals his Roman citizenship in order to further the gospel. So remember that Paul was physically weakened and probably in a state of shock up to a certain point. Nevertheless, he wanted to address the crowd. How this brings to mind Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, when he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. He is the end of the law, the goal of the law, the finish line of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
He even says in that, in, in, in that book of Romans, he says, I, I, I wish that I would be accursed for them to come to know Christ. If it was a matter of me being accursed, it would be for them to know Christ and let it be. That's how much he loved the Jewish people. That's how much he loved Israel. But now he's on the higher ground. And it reminds us of the spiritual warfare that all of us go through each and every day. Read Ephesians chapter 6. That's your homework tonight. The spiritual ground, or the spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, I should say, requires us to be on the spiritual higher ground with the cross and the Word of God. So being filled with overflowing with the Spirit of God, Paul bore a spiritual authority even among the Romans and the Jews. I mean, the Roman soldiers couldn't quiet the crowd. But one beaten Jew, with a wave of his hand, brought about a great silence. Can you, can you just picture that? And again, Paul had this courageous commitment that stemmed from his strong convictions and his desire to see his fellow Jews saved. And as Paul quiets this unruly mob down, he begins to speak to them in the Hebrew dialect, or, or Aramaic as it were, the language of the day for the Jew. And we'll see next time what Paul has to say and the results of what he had to say to them. But I just want to bring you to this, this point here about what we've said so far. That there may be a time of temptation in the wilderness. There may be a time when people come to us with needs that only God can meet. There may be a time when we seem at the mercy of a storm, a time when we must cry out to God as in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus did, a time when we must simply lay down our lives and trust God will gloriously raise us up. While we, like Paul, are as he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, when he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then to take hold of the personal things that Paul says of himself, when he says in Philippians 3, verses 8-10, through 10, Yet indeed I also count all things lost, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ." And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And notice this, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. You see, Paul took the higher ground of the cross and as we'll see next time he takes full advantage of that position some would argue and say well you know Paul never did what he did when he went on his other missionary journeys when he got to Jerusalem it's not for us to say it is for us to be obedient. And Paul was obedient to the cross. And Paul was obedient 
to Christ. And Paul was obedient to the commandments of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, can we do any less than take the higher ground of the cross? It burdens me to say that in the modern church today, or as some would call it, the postmodern church, that the cross is not important anymore. That the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross is, is secondary to a lot of other things. Secondary to our social justice. The change that we ought to be making, you know, about the way people are treated and the way things are done in life. It's not to say that that's not important. But to take, take the importance of the cross and place it below everything else is not only heresy, it's blasphemy. It's making the cross what the world sees, foolishness. But as Christians, we're not looking at the cross any longer as foolishness. It is our very life. Without the cross of Jesus Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross, we have nothing. I don't care what kind of change we can make in this world. Peace does not come except through the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. And once that's changed in the heart of every individual that comes to know Christ... Then we can lead others to that peace. Paul took the higher ground of the cross. Can we do anything? Can we do any less than stand firm, faithfully firm, and focused to stand for and to stand upon the cross of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.